All right, well, after spending 10 years in Acts, we're only five weeks into Alive and Really Living, and this is the fifth and final Sunday. So for those of you that like things to move along, uh, hopefully this scratched that itch. The idea, though, is that if we're alive in Jesus, if we're really living by the Spirit, people can tell. Like, it's attractive. It's something that is noticeable. There's an assumption throughout Scripture that what God has done us is observable to others, that we're putting our lives in proximity to people far from Jesus and that what they see is actually attractive. And so the, the assumption then would be that if, if someone were to come and to visit on a Sunday and walk in, they might say, wow, there's something different there. And people often say there's something different there, but they don't always mean it's a good thing. They would say there's something different, desirable, attractive. I might not even be able to put my finger on it, but I want to be there. I want to be with those people. And so I want to share some statistics with you that would possibly lend to the conclusion that that's not always the case uh, when someone walks into a church. Just some national data from the Pew Research Center. Uh, The first piece of data, this is a 2014 study. It measured seven years 2007 to 2014, and approximately 35,000 people coast to coast in the United States. They found that the number of adults who identified as having some sort of Christian religious affiliation, a very loose definition, but self-identifying as some sort of loose Christian affiliation, declined by 8% over that course of, of those seven years. At the same time, the number of adults who said, I identify as someone who has no religious affiliation, no religious connection, went up from about 19.5% to around 26%. And so another trend that's happening simultaneous to that over the same period of time is that the people, the group of adults who responded to having no religious affiliation, the median age decreased by 2% to 36 down from 38 Median age, 36 of that population. Anyone want to guess what the median age of the population that identified as having some sort of Christian affiliation was? If you said 52, you would be right. I know most of you were thinking that. The average age increased from 50 to... Median age increased from 50 to 52. And so, so some of what we're seeing is that the group of people on a national scale that would identify, self-identify as having some sort of Christian affiliation, that pool is, is getting smaller as a percent of the country. And those in that pool are aging, are, are getting older. Versus the category of those who self-identify as having no religious affiliation, that pool is getting younger and younger and that number, as a percent of the country, is, is increasing. Um, church strategist Kerry Newhoff has some reflections on a similar study that the Barna Group did. This was not quite to the scale of 35,000 people. This was just 5,000 people, but it's, it's more current. He lists a handful of reasons why we're seeing this trend with some of the younger individuals, some of the younger families. Uh, one observation he had is, This is not a trend because these individuals are unfamiliar with the church. This is a trend because they are familiar and they come in and they take a look around or maybe they've got family that have been a part of a church for an extended period of time and they walk away saying, what a hypocritical mess that is. Some of you have had that experience. A couple other 
uh, items he notes from the research. He said uh, many of the young folks that disassociated themselves with a Christian affiliation said that they, they came to church, but they didn't feel like they encountered God. They didn't feel like they learned about him. Maybe they encountered religion. Maybe they encountered rules. Maybe they encountered a bunch of people trying to smile or, or to distract themselves with other things, but that it wasn't something that they left from saying, I've encountered God. Last on his list was the comment that many young people aren't finding community. So they're, they're looking for unity. They're looking for togetherness. They're looking for relationships. We know there's an epidemic of loneliness. They're looking for this connectedness and not finding it in the church, the place across all culture that should be most connected, most unified. And so the question might be, how does the church realign? How does the church refocus? How how do we, if we want to have a growing voice in culture, a growing influence in Roseburg, if we want to see more people following Jesus, more people set free from past, from sin, from addiction, from all sorts of dysfunction, how do we increase our voice? Does God have have a plan for this, or are we just left to our own devices. I would say from John 17, yes, yes, there is a plan. And as we have sung and as we have said, it's our unity derived first from our relationship with the Father that then goes horizontal, that changes all of our relationships, especially those in the church, that is designed by the Father to point our communities to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, would you open to John 17? We're going to read verses 20 through 26. I want you to see our first point simply that true unity marks the Christian life. True unity marks, defines, describes, is found in, should have evidence in the Christian life. Starting in verse 20, John chapter 17. Jesus is praying, he's talking to the Father, and he's asking on behalf of all future followers of Jesus. So feel free to put your name in here. I won't say that often. John seventeen twenty. I do not ask, Jesus says, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me, verse 22, the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is saying, with the unity that exists between Father and Son and and ultimately Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, going to the Lord and say, make these people one. May they have the same oneness that we have. May they be unified in thought, unified in mind, unified in desire, unified in action. And so we see that unity, togetherness, uh, community, meaningful relationships, we can see that unity is a 
the thing that we desire, whether you're following Jesus or not, it's something that we all desire. And one of the ways that we see this is through tragedy, right? Some of you were very involved in the aftermath of the UCC shooting, and, and so you're familiar with uh, Roseburg Strong and all these different movements that are unifying movements to bring a community together. Because when we're fractured, we recognize that that's a objectively bad thing, and we want to fix it. It's not right. It's something that we want to mend. You remember the Boston Marathon bombing, and, and Boston Strong came out of that. The Boston Globe describes that, that saying as a united front in the face of a threat. A united front. That slogan, Boston Strong. A united front in the face of a threat. We recognize unity as a value when a couple lights a unity candle at a wedding. And then when they celebrate 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years of marriage. We recognize that their commitment is meaningful, is objectively good. Their commitment to one another, their commitment to put themselves aside and to elevate the other. Have we have anyone in here that's been married more than 30 years? 40 years? 45 years? Oh, 50 years? 55 years? 57 years? 58 and a half years? 60. Does any, can anyone top 60? All right, just tell me. How many? 62. All right, nice work. So if you've been less, married less than 62 years... Nothing. Got nothing. First service, there was two families at 60, so way to go, 62. We recognize that that's a good thing, right? We recognize that that didn't happen because they just found their soulmates and looked dreamily, dreams, well, I don't know where that is, looked dreamy into each other's eyes and every day was better than the previous and they always got jobs, and finances always worked out, and never had any health problems, never had any difficulty, just rosy red carpet all the way through life. No, we know that when you get to 62 years, when you get to 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, it's the result of hard work, isn't it? It's a result of a meaningful commitment to unity in that marriage to those vows, and we recognize that's a good thing. We recognize that that's something we all want and need as objectively good. And so, so what we see here, just from the very beginning of our text, is that unity is first found in the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's hardwired into us at creation. That unity uh, and the love in that context actually pre-exists us, predates life. And so when we look at the desire in our own hearts, we understand that we were made by a creator who exists in unity and love. And that that caused component of our life comes from the one who caused us, from the one who created us. The problem is, is that for the most part, like many other areas of life, we believe the enemy lies. And so we look for unity. We look for that connection apart from the Father. Uh, we do that in so many ways, and, and we don't have time to speak to all of them, but you often see that with regards to relationship, uh, putting that all onto a spouse, which eventually will crush that spouse because that's an incredible weight, uh, or, or onto our kids. It will also crush our kids because it's an incredible weight that they were never designed to bear. Here's a couple ways that we see that happen just in culture at large. Uh, one way is this 
idea that is pervasive of if we could just be a little bit better, if we could just all get along, we would have unity. And so it helps me to think about it uh, um, relating to the, the kids back in children's ministry right now. And so if you think about uh, those kids, pick a classroom, any classroom you want to go into, but if you bake some fresh cookies and you walk back there with that plate and walk in and say, who wants cookies, you're going to get conflict, aren't you? Because they're going to fight over who gets the biggest one. They're going to fight, it, well, if you make the mistake of having a different types of cookies, then they're going to fight over which ones they want, which ones has the biggest chocolate chips, which ones has the white chocolate chips, which is the oatmeal and raisin, etc., etc. Now, if you get wise and say, kids, line up, there's enough for everyone, thinking that you fixed the problem, what are you going to find? They're going to fight to get to the front of the line, aren't they? They're going to fight to cut in line when you're not looking, aren't they? If you wise up further and say, this was a dumb idea, and just leave, you're not going to fix the problem, are you? They're going to fight over toys. They're not going to share. They're going to want what someone else has, and they're going to go take it and think that there's nothing wrong with that and then want to do something to the other kid when they take it back. Uh, You see, the issue is not the cookies. The issue is not the line. The issue is not the toys. The issue is their sinful hearts, right? Uh, We see this with adults, too. Uh, You've... you've heard someone at some point say, don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics, don't talk about money. The thought is if we just stop talking about the things that are divisive, in the void of that division will be unity. Uh, And and we know that's just not the case, right? We can disagree about anything. (laughs) Put enough of us into a room and put any topic on the board and and we're going to disagree because the issue is not those culturally charged, emotionally divisive topics. The issue is the sin in our hearts. So if we address with the kids, the cookies, or the line, or the toys, if we address as adults the issues that are divisive, but don't address the sin, don't get right vertically with our Father from whom unity flows, we stand no chance of being unified together uh, or with anyone else. Another Another common thing you'll see is the idea that if we can just not hold strongly to any belief that might be offensive to another, in that void will come beautiful, peaceful, heaven-sent unity. Um, The thought goes, at least as it's directed towards Christians, you might hear someone say, your Christian beliefs are intolerant. Your Christian beliefs are bigoted. Your Christian beliefs are the cause for so much of the division and the war and the evil that we see in the world. And again, the thinking goes, if we can just pretend like we agree, everything will be okay. How many of you in your marriage can pretend like you agree and have everything be okay? How many of you with your family, uh, your parents, your kids, your siblings can just Pretend like your older sibling, older sibling, older brother isn't picking on you, beating on you, making fun of you. How many of you can just pretend that your older sibling loves you and protects you and looks after you and have everything just be okay? In what context of life has it ever worked where we ignore what's going on and the outcome is peaceful unity and meaningful relationships? It's a pathway to disunity. It's a pathway to dysfunction not a path 
to unity, again, if we don't address the problem, if we just deal with the symptoms. We won't get right with our Father, and we will never get right with each other. Turn back to John 7, if you you still have that open. Uh, I want to read verse 23, and I just want to reinforce that God is the source of our unity. Unity flows from the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 23 says this, I in them, and you in me. Jesus talking to the Father. I in them, him in us. And you, Father, in me, Jesus. That they may be per- become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me me. Unity that comes from uh, just hanging out with people that you like is not the unity that we're talking about. Unity that comes from avoiding divisive topics is not the unity that we're talking about. Unity that comes from not dealing with issues is not what we're talking about. We're talking about unity that comes from the Father, that gives us a supernatural capacity to love people that live, think, believe differently than we do. The source is the Father, not our agreements, not our uh, the people that we like or dislike, not the degree to which we're treated well or not treated well, not the degree to which people speak kindly of us or poorly to us. The basis, the foundation, the genesis of unity is us and the Father. I want to take a look real quick at what the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit is in Scripture so that we can take from that uh, an example, a model, uh, some direction about how do we live with unity towards each other. Uh, Three things the Bible says about the Trinity. First, uh, God is one. Uh, Second, God has eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Third, all three persons are fully God and yet distinct in their own way. Uh, Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, if you have your Bibles. Uh, A well-known passage that that would be recited regularly. Deuteronomy 6.4 goes way back. And we see here that God is one. Verse 5, Hear, O Israel. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Timothy 2 says something similar in verse 5. It says, for there is just one God. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If someone says to you, I believe in your God, I believe in the Christian God, but I also believe in these other gods, I also believe in these other ways, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not the Christian God. That's not the God of the Bible. There is one. Uh, second, that God has eternally existed as three persons. You're familiar with some of the creation narrative. Those are well-known passages, and we see the Spirit of God hovering over the earth as God uh, begins creation. We see in Genesis 1, 26, where God is preparing to make man, and what does he say? Let us, in the plural, let us make man, in, again, the plural, in our own image. Some of you are familiar with Matthew 
3, uh, verses 16 and 17. Jesus has come in the flesh, and Jesus is led to get baptized, and then Jesus goes out of, down in the water, Jesus comes out of the water, and it says, when he was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit, there it is, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, on Jesus as he's in the water, and behold, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You remember Matthew 28, when Jesus is instructing his disciples to be multiplication-minded, to go and to make disciples, to teach others what he's taught them. He says, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, right? And baptizing them in the name, in the name of the what? In the Father, right? And in the Son, right? And the Holy Spirit. So does the Bible clearly teach that there is one God? Yes, clearly, cover to cover. Does the Bible teach that he has eternally existed as three persons, as Father, as Son, and as Spirit? Cover to cover. Genesis through the end. Finally, all three persons are fully God and yet distinct persons with distinct roles. God the Father takes this role of initiator, of planner, right? We read regularly, the Father sent the Son, Jesus often is the executor, the one who executes the plan of God, right? Jesus is sent. Jesus in the garden says, not my will be done, Father, but yours. We see over and over and over the Holy Spirit applying that work in the lives of believers, right? Opening eyes so that people follow and respond with faith. With regards to all being fully God, uh, some of you remember Acts chapter 5. It wasn't too long ago, (laughs) maybe four or five months, Ananias and Sapphira, right? And and what do they do? They sell a piece of property for X number of dollars and they walk into the apostles and they say, here's all the proceeds. We have given everything that we made. Look at us. Anyone want to pat us on the back? And and what what do they say? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Spirit. And as they go on, you have lied not to man, but to who? But to God. We see the Spirit, uh, fully God. And how about Jesus in, in John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then fast forward to verse 14. And the Word became flesh, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see Father, Son, and Spirit distinct in their roles, all fully God. Uh, one way to, to think about it is they're equal in essence, equal in attributes, different in function, never less than fully God, never less than each other, even though at times they submit to each other. So as we move on, true unity marks the Christian life because it marks, it's the DNA, it's the being of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, that there is unity in their diversity, that there is unity in their three and oneness. The second point today is simply that true unity shows Jesus to the world, that it is God's plan. It is the Father's plan to show Jesus as relevant, as loving, as the answer and the solution to the world around us through the unity of God's people in local churches, not limited to local churches, right? Uh, Pastor Grant mentioned uh, the prayer service. There's all sorts of things that happen in our community through the B1 
Umqua collection of churches that, that partner together to help in the foster care system, that partner together for special services, that partner together for prayer. Our unity isn't limited to local churches, but for most of us, this is one of the primary places where we live out that unity. I want to look at a little bit at how the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other. I think that's going to show us a lot about how we relate to each other as family, as, as one. Uh, if you have your Bible still, John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40 is the next place I would love for you to turn. John 6, 39, 40. I, I want you to see how Father and Son work together. I want you to see how Jesus submits to the Father, submits to the Father, sacrifices for the Father. Back to 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For it is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last days. Unity here, unity with followers of Christ, other churches that you work with, that you live next to, requires that we learn to submit and to sacrifice to each other and for each other. When we come together as a group, we all have different preferences about how this service looks, about how different things that happen here look. And if we're going to be successful, if we're going to be a light in this community, if people are going to see Jesus, it's because each of us is going to have to let go of some of those preferences. If you're on the younger end of the age spectrum here, I would invite you to consider what it means to let go of some of your preference to learn from, give to, and bless those older than you here. If you're on the older end of the spectrum, I would encourage you to consider what preferences do you need to let go to be more effective at helping those younger than you follow Jesus. Believing that we all have a part to play. The Spirit and the Father here are working together. It's collaborative. Each part being significant and meaningful for the Lord's work. Neither coveting the role of someone else, maybe the recognition that someone else gets, whether their role is up front or behind the scenes, we see in the Father and Son that there is submission to each other, that there is sacrifice for each other. Some of you have incredible needs. Some of you have incredible resources. Do you think that it's by accident that some here today have incredible need and some have incredible resource? Do you think if you're on the resource side of things that that The Father allowed that and and guided that and and provided and gave that so that you could just do more for yourself? Or do you think that he even sends you here this morning saying, someone here has a need, we need to connect these dots. And so we just want to see that in God's beautiful work, we all have a part to play regardless of our past, regardless of our pain. We all have a part to play and it's a meaningful Part And we see that in the way the Father and the Son and the Spirit interact with each other. Another item from verses 22 and 23 in John 7. I'll read those one more time. It says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Church, the the unity that, that comes from God, from us being right vertically and then horizontally, is a unity of affection. And so some of us in the context of church, in the context of a body like this, we have people that have rubbed us the wrong way, said things that we took the wrong way. Maybe they said them intending to be mean, and we took it just as they intended. The unity that comes from God is a posture, is is a unity of affection, where we are mimicking and showing the love that the Father has for the Son, the love that the Son has for us. It is that love to which we are called to love each other. So we're not called just to tolerate each other. We're not called just to not be mean to each other. First uh, Peter 1.22 uh, speaks to this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I love First Peter 22 because many of us can fake it for a time, right? There might be people in here that you're thinking of that you're not making eye contact with right now. Some of you are in second service because you didn't want to see someone who was in first service. Some of you are possibly attending this particular church because you didn't want to see someone from the church that you came from. We're not called to merely tolerate. We're not called merely to keep our mouths shut. We're called to love from a pure heart. And so some of us can fake the actions of love, like smiling, uh, maybe a handshake, maybe a hug, maybe a kind word, but we can't fake that pure heart. And so the Bible just ratchets it up a notch and says, good, so you can pretend to like the people around you. Well done. Pat yourself on the back. Love from a pure heart. Again, when, when God brings us things, when God shows us our sin, when God shows us what's in our heart, it's not to crush us. It's to cause us to run to us, to run to him. It's to cause us to, to go to him and say, clearly, something is wrong with me vertically because I got a whole bunch wrong <laughs> horizontally. And, and I might suggest, if you're someone who has a pattern of disunity, a pattern of division, a, a pattern of it's, it's all about you and about what you want, that when things go wrong horizontally, it often stems from things being wrong vertically. And we won't have unity with each other if we don't get unified with our Father. Third, uh, unity from God has its aim for God's glory, and it's an authenticating mark to the world outside of faith. Uh, Jesus says it twice in this passage that they may be one as you and I are one so that the world may know that you sent me so that they may see and know the love with which you have for me. Uh, Romans 15, 5-7 is a, is a pretty significant passage. Uh, let me read it to you about uh, our purpose and unity in God's glory. Uh, Romans 15, 
Verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has loved me, as Christ has loved you for the glory of God. And and, and so what we see is that God's glory needs to mean more to us than, than being right, than being justified, than being treated fairly, than being even spoken of well. And then possibly giving somebody what they deserve. Because it's God's plan to show Douglas County, Jesus, their need for Jesus, that his love for them through our unity. Some of you have seen the imperfections within churches uh, in ways that you wish you could unsee. Right? All churches are imperfect. All church staff persons are imperfect. Even all church deacons, elders, people on the finance team, home group leaders, children's ministry workers, even sound people, all imperfect. And so uh, if you have a leak in your roof, you don't abandon the house, you go fix the leak, right? If your toilet is overflowing, you don't run out and pretend like it didn't happen, Right? You go and you turn the knob off and turn the water off. You fix the problem. And so my encouragement to you, if you're someone who has seen the sin side of church, seen the ugly side of a bunch of people getting together to try to follow Jesus, that I would suggest that you saw that or you were witness to it or it came near to you in part because God has you as part of that solution. Some of you have been really wounded by churches that you've been a part of, and, and it's caused you to to withdraw or, or, or disconnect. And, and I would say, if we believe that a gathering of believers is supposed to be a light in the Tula community, if we believe that a gathering of believers is supposed to glorify God, if we believe that a gathering of believers is supposed to point people to Jesus, then when our roof is leaking, we don't just abandon the house. And when the toilet is overflowing, we don't just run out screaming. We, we run in and try to play our part to fix the problem. And so if you're here, whether you have a great history with this church or any other church, or a really rough history here or elsewhere, uh, I'm going to encourage you to get involved. I'm going to encourage you to try to meet someone new each Sunday. I'm going to encourage you to, to maybe try to pray for someone each week you're here, believing God has you here for a purpose beyond what you can get out of some aspect of gathering. I'm going to encourage you to consider being in a home group or a men's study or a women's study where you can invest into the lives of each other, knowing that if you do any of those things, someone's going to say something offensive. Someone's going to tick you off. You're going to think it should be done this way. Someone else is going to think it should be done this way, and you're going to get upset, and we're going to be forced, we're going to be pressed in to this unifying process whereby in daily situations, some big and some little, we will be forced to say, God's glory means more to me than being right. God's glory means more to me than holding this grudge. And so the invitation is to play a part, to go to the Father, to go to the Lord, and say, God, what part have you given me to play and to be open, to be faithful, to take a step 
If you're here this morning and you're not sure what part you play, I have no idea where I fit. Try something. You'll know quickly. Ask someone. We'd love to help you find a spot. Not because there's holes to fill, uh, but because we're weaker. God's glory is less visible. God's kingdom going forward is less evident, less powerful when we don't play our part. He's designed this community to see Jesus through the unity that we have for each other. Last from our passage, uh, verses 25 and 26 of John 7, talk about Jesus having made known to those there the name of the Father, the glory of the Father, the character of the Father, and that it's Jesus' ongoing work to make known to us the name, the glory, the ways, the will, the purpose, the character, the attributes of the Father. And so one of the things that we see is the, the views or the way that unity works itself out is always going to be in accordance with God's word. It's always going to be guided. It's always going to be led. It's always going to be grounded by God's word. And so we want to get into this as much as we possibly can. We want to work through this uh, on Sunday mornings. When we gather together, we want to come around this, find from this that vertical unity with our Father so that we can go and live that for each other. We don't have the capacity without this. You will not have the capacity for unity without that.